So it's official. Twitter now belongs to you-know-who. On today's podcast, we talk about which law firms stand to gain as a result of this deal actually closing and which ones stand to lose. And we also ask the question, who's really in charge over there? Stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. Elon Musk's now finalized deal to purchase Twitter generated a ton of attention throughout the year, and it also generated a ton of business for some of the biggest law firms in the country. That's what led to the amusing anecdote in a recent Financial Times story that at Wachtell, which was representing Twitter in Delaware, the junior partners had to interpret for the senior partners Musk's increasingly esoteric and scatological memes. I gotta be honest with you, when we did a podcast about this suit earlier this summer, I really didn't think this $44 billion deal would go through, but now it has, and that means big changes at Twitter and at the law firms that represent it. Bloomberg Law's Chris Offer and Justin Wise are writing about all of this, and I brought them on the podcast to talk about who's going to be handling Twitter's legal matters moving forward. But first, I asked Chris to tell me about the firms Cooley and Perkins Cooey, which may be about to lose their client because, well, Elon Musk holds grudges. Yeah, so both of these firms, Cooley and Perkins Cooey, are very well-known, very large law firms that do a lot of work in the tech sector and have a heavy West Coast presence. They have long worked for Twitter, advising the company in court on deals and in other types of matters. They also both, I believe, had previously done some work for Musk uh, over at Tesla. Um, But the problem for both of them now that Musk is taking control of Twitter is that it turns out he is no longer a fan of either of those firms. And back in May, he publicly criticized them, taking to his favorite platform, Twitter, to um, basically call them out, referring to them as uh, white shoe law firms and accusing them of corruption. Well, although, of course, you know, being there was a point where being called a white shoe law firm was a compliment. I guess he wasn't using it in that sense, though, was he? Uh, no, I don't think so. And and this was part of a, a, twi- a string of tweets in which Musk was announcing that at Tesla, he was going to stop outsourcing a lot of their litigation work and build a, quote, hardcore litigation team internally. And so what he was saying that he wanted these stone cold killers uh, in terms of trial lawyers rather than um, folks from these uh, big firms who he thought were not um, not fighting hard enough for him in court. And do you want to get into why he sort of now has a grudge against these these two firms? Um, You know, I know in one case there was a, a situation where he wanted an attorney at one of the firms fired because he that attorney worked previously for the SEC which went after Elon Musk, and he felt like he didn't want that attorney to work at a firm that he was giving business to, and the firm declined, right? Do I have that right? Yeah, pretty much. It's a, a, a lawyer at the SEC came over to Cooley in an associate role, and prior to joining Cooley, he had worked for uh, on this probe that resulted in Tesla being forced to pay, I think, more than $800 million in terms of a settlement. Reportedly, Musk went to Cooley and said, you need to get rid of this guy or we're not working with you anymore. Cooley declined, and Musk stopped giving them work. Uh, the lawyer has since left Cooley uh, for an in-house corporate job, but I don't think that that's going to 
really make Musk feel any better about working with the firm. It's not about the, that guy being there necessarily as much as it is about them not uh, obeying his orders. Yeah. And, and you know, you quoted a, a law professor in your story, Chris. This this person said that these firms are very, very motivated to smooth this over. And that, you know, even though I'm sure they're not happy that they're being kind of bullied and maybe some would say even humiliated by Elon Musk in public, that they uh, have a lot of incentive to, you know, let, let that go. Uh, do you think that they will be able to smooth this over or is there really nothing that they can do to kind of get back into the good graces of, of Elon Musk? I think it's highly unlikely that they can be- get back into his good graces, even if they may or may not want to. I should say the reason why he's uh, miffed at Perkins Coie seems to be their ties to the Democratic Party, their work on the Hillary Clinton campaign, um, some of the issues with their former partner, a guy named Michael Sussman, who was charged with uh, lying to the FBI about some evidence tying Trump to a Russian bank and not telling the FBI that he was working for uh, Hillary Clinton at the time when he provided this information. Of course, Sussman was acquitted of those charges, but Musk has referred to that as a hoax. And as you see him shifting uh, more towards the right, certainly in his own personal politics, it's a hard sell um, to see him then working with a firm that's so closely aligned with the Democratic Party. Um, but again, you know, I think it, what it really comes down to, it's it's more the fact that this relationship is, is likely over in the case of both firms is more about Musk than it is about the firms. Uh, this is the type of guy that is, you know, long had a history of cycling through lawyers. I think Tesla is on its fifth general counsel since 2019. One of the first things that Musk did when he took over Twitter was to get rid of the two top lawyers at the company within the first 24 hours. And, you know, he just seems like the guy who's not going to have a change of heart here. Why would he in his mind? Yeah. And and we should uh, I should say, you know, if you're more interested in, in that situation that Chris just referred to at Tesla, we had our colleague Brian Baxter on a few weeks ago to talk about that. So go check that episode out. Um, so those are the losers uh, in uh, this new change. Let's talk about a winner. And the winner here seems to be perhaps Quinn Emanuel. Um, why is Quinn Emanuel kind of primed to pick up some business here? And why does it seem like ostensibly they're his favorite law firm? So, yeah, certainly we have seen more and more frequently that uh, Musk has walked away from firms like Cooley and Perkins Cooley. He has uh, given a lot of that business to Quinn Emanuel and in particular to a litigator over at that firm named Alex Spiro. Everything from a closely watched defamation case that Spiro helped successfully defend him on to the recent litigation in Delaware with Twitter over this on again, off again deal. And it really seems like they are increasingly, at least for the time being, of course, uh, becoming Elon's favorite law firm. And some of that is probably because uh, they're both brash uh, captain of industry type guys. So you can see why they're, um, you know, they get along. Well, Justin, let's bring you in here because I want to learn more about Spyro. Um, You know, who is he and how did he become, I guess, from a legal standpoint, Elon Musk's right hand man? Yeah, so uh, Alex Spiro, he's a lawyer who's most well known for his celebrity clients. Like he counts uh, Jay Z as a client. He's represented uh, Robert Kraft, who's the uh, owner of the New England Patriots. He's represented a bunch of different uh, hip hop artists and professional basketball players. Um, 
And yeah, as Chris alluded to, he's known by some of his peers as this very aggressive, confident personality. I think it may partly be linked to the path he's taken. His resume includes stints as a prosecutor, criminal defense attorney. He's been in the courtroom a lot. And a few years ago, I think through his representation of a lot of celebrity clients, he's seen a lot and he got on Elon Musk's radar um, and has since just become a constant presence by his side in in litigation matters. Um, That defamation trial, he successfully defended Musk in that that case. And I think that uh, was a a very big case because I think generally the public's perception of that case originally was that Musk was going to lose. And so that was a a big win. And since then, a lot of work has gone his way. He's got a lot of litigation work from Musk on on his plate, it looks like, um, just from looking at court filings. Yeah, well, I, I'm more interested not so much in the work that he's gotten, but in the work that he's getting right now. And the reason why I ask is because Elon Musk took over at t- Twitter officially on Friday, and he immediately fired a bunch of uh, top executives, including Vijagade, who is the head of legal, and Sean Eggett, who is their uh, GC. Is it an exaggeration to say that Alex Spiro is now basically the de facto general counsel at Twitter? Like, can we go that far? I do think right now that it would be overstating it. Spiro is a he's a trusted advisor of Musk's. He's in this inner circle. And it's become apparent in recent day that Musk is leaning on this circle of trusted allies to help him with this transition, this overhaul. So and Spiro is one of those people. And he appears to be filling this deputy style role for uh, Musk. Um, so it's unclear how long that work will be. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, he's a partner at Quinn Emanuel, which is an outside counsel firm. He's got uh, a long list of clients. So it kind of gives rise to a, a good question. You know, how long can he feasibly focus on this? So I, I imagine that we'll get more clarity on on that question just with time. So, OK, finally, Uh, Chris, I want to bring you back in. And and Justin, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, too, that it really seems like the reason why Quinn is surging and maybe these other firms are not, at least when it comes to Musk world, is their culture. You know, that Quinn's culture is more brash and more sort of out there. And, you know, as Elon Musk sort of pejoratively said, these other firms are white shoe firms. Is that what's going on here? Is this a culture shift in terms of what at least Musk wants, if not what other CEOs, you know, tech CEOs want? I think that's probably right. I mean, you know, a lot of us would probably say if we got into some sort of legal trouble, we want the shark. Some of the tech, uh, you know, the the techniques and the practices might not be, um, you know, totally above board. Certainly Spyro has been accused of, you know, getting involved in um, some pretty nasty situations involving Leon Black and Weinstein. But at the end of the day, if you're somebody like Musk, there is certainly a marriage of culture and personality there. Um, Quinn Emanuel is probably the most profitable, just straight up litigation firm. I mean, that's what they do. They go to court and they go to court aggressively. And, And you can see based on everything we know about Elon Musk, that that's right up his alley. What do you think, Justin? Is this, um, you know, are we seeing a culture shift in terms of firms that service kind of the titans of Silicon Valley? I mean, yeah, it's a a good question because what I think about um, is a couple of those caveats that uh, Chris mentioned, like 
Quinn Emanuel is a big law firm, but they're also a litigation firm, which means that they're a little unique from a lot of their competitors. And then when you think of Alex Spiro, I don't necessarily think that he's any different than maybe lawyers from your past eras that are known as these very, um, you know, outspoken, brash figures. I mean, I feel like there's kind of that stereotype of the the lawyer in court who's um, going to the mat for their clients and, and gets a lot of publicity maybe in the tabloids because they're always in these big trials with big name clients. So I don't necessarily know if there's something unique about Spyro or Quinn Emanuel's role, but I, I do think it's I do think it's a, something that is worth paying attention to. Um, there's definitely something something unique about about the firm and and how it exists in I guess the big law ecosystem. That's a really good point, and I guess maybe now that I'm thinking about it, maybe it's a return to the way things used to be because now ever since you know big law became really really corporatized, I think of like a big law partner as someone who is you know very sober and very sort of he- hesitant to like mix it up in the media and to to you know be in the public arena uh but that wasn't always the case i mean their lawyers you know of course typically had very flashy personalities and were out there um maybe we're returning to that like what do you what do you guys think of that i'd like to hear both of you i think that that we have not lost that when it comes to trial lawyers and the big trial lawyers who do these bet the company cases have always been that way and will continue to be that way and i i think that speaks to sort of the difference of the type of work here uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, um, I, I don't know that that Elon Musk's preferences for attorneys speaks volumes about the tech industry's um, preferences for attorneys. I don't there's probably some overlap, but um, I'm not sure that I would read into the, you know, read that into the bigger picture. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Not everyone is like Elon Musk. Uh, that would be uh, a weird world to live in. <laughs> What do you, what, Justin, I'll give you the last word. What do you think? Well, no, yeah, I I don't have too much to add from what what Chris mentioned. And mentioned, I think uh, perhaps Quinn Emanuel might be an exception to the general rule that they, uh, as a firm that is focused solely on litigation, that by virtue of that, maybe they have more personalities that can kind of gel well with a uh, figure like Elon Musk. Yeah. All right. Well, that was Justin Wise and Chris Opfer uh, talking about Twitter, Elon Musk, and where the big law industry is heading. Uh, Thank you guys so much for talking. You got it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Reach out to us on Twitter. Yes, that Twitter. If you have anything on your mind, we have the handle at BLaw. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. 
Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much, somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are going to be excluded in significant numbers. Only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.